And we're back. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, everyone, uh, we had to call it quits in the middle of our podcast last night, but we are back for round two. Just to recap, uh, there is a scene earlier on in which uh, Tamara and Kelly, who are hanging around, and uh, Tamara wants to do coke because that's who she is. And she's at a, uh, you know, she's making bad choices at this stage in her life. And Kelly, who actually, uh, she recoils from this, but uh, the teacher, Charles, catches her and threatens her with uh, expulsion. And he brings up the idea that um, unless uh, you hand in your biology report. Project. Uh, yeah, yeah, project. Your biology project. You're not going to graduate. Lots of that to that. So Tamara uh, maneuvers Wayne, who we've already uh, established via dialogue with JJ, that Wayne is this dweeby beta-ish male who is going to do her bidding no matter what. And he lurks outside of Tamara's room while she lures Charles in and uh, then tries to seduce him. Or she's not actually trying to seduce him. Very much like Melissa in Part 7, she's only using her sexuality to get him into a compromising position for her own ends. And uh, when when she... uh, when Charles comes into the room, she uh, we get the, the uh, we get the slow shot up from the floor, crawling up her body to the top, and then she turns around and she reveals that she has drawn pictures of organs all over her body. <laughs> like there's a really elaborate drawing of her stomach on her stomach and the heart and da 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 da, and it, it, which is by the way not sexy at all. Is no. the most un- unsexy thing in the entire world, right. and um, but uh, she grabs him when she does this, and she reveals her youthful sexuality to him. Uh, his response is, "Hey, no, <laughs> stop, <laughs> huh? What?" She drags him down to the bed with him, weakly protesting, uh, because you know. <laughs> God, even though he's a skeezy old motherfucker, he really wants to do her. But <laughs> he totally wants to. But oh, yeah. he can't because, you know, and that's when Wayne jumps in and he gets a video of them. So it's just like, dude, there is a VHS cassette out there with <laughs> comp- a teacher in a compromising position and Jason Voorhees <laughs> in a murder you know- and proof of a murder. It's like this, this tape could solve a lot of shit. <laughs> I'm glad that you doubled back to that because I have to admit, like, that whole part of the movie is when I'm falling asleep. So I, you know, I fell asleep at the wheel. But that is one of the examples of batshit nuts, stupid as hell, but fantastic. Yeah, the the, yeah, the yeah. organs drawn on her body and the way that the scene plays out is hilarious i also like that charles never really loses his sense of authority like even though they've got him kind of dead to rights he's as pompous and threatening to them as ever it doesn't get to him it doesn't really rattle him and i actually kind of appreciated that yeah you know he is a character who uh in a weird kind of way is stridently one note they Mm -hmm. just decide that he's going to be a dick in every scene Mm-hmm. And uh, but even without the shading of Doctor Cruz and Seven, like 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 Cruz and Seven, like 
I mean, he's an extraordinarily unctuous guy, but it feels like there's like a you know there's a professional. He wants to make something of himself. And you understand he, his ambition, and you understand the degree of humanity and compassion that he has. You know, like it's kind of like he doesn't think of uh, Tina and her mother as ants. You know, I mean, it, it, he would like for it to work out for them. He would like to help Tina. He would like to not have the two of them get murdered in the woods right in front of him. But when push comes to shove, Dr. Cruz is going to put Dr. Cruz first. It's a very human, you know, psychology. Whereas this this character is much more weirdly artificial and like, where the fuck did this guy come from? Yeah, Dr. Cruz is, uh, it feels like that character came from the watched Aliens and decide, hey, it would be funny to have like a Paul Reiser type guy. You know, whereas yeah. this guy, whereas this character is basically like, uh, he's the main principal in a sitcom for 13 year olds on Nickelodeon. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. In every scene, he has something shitty to say, even when they're like rowing a boat out in the middle of nowhere and God. like the teenagers are trying their best to just yeah. to survive. I mean, this guy in this tweed fucking jacket and his stupid eyebrows is just like, good job getting us out here in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's just like, you fucking yeah, row, you He's prick. the kind of character that says things like, we've already been through all of this. Yeah. John, that's, actually, that's a very good impression. You know, the, 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 the good teacher, um, uh, whose name escapes me, leads a, a group of just nameless teenagers as far as i can tell into the the uh the dance hall right and she says stay here i'm gonna go find everybody else and they go and she finds everybody else and this is when we get the deckhand with the axe in his back and she says wait i've i've got to go back they're still in the you know the 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 the, the disco or whatever it was and sean says there is no disco anymore and like (laughs) that's right oh my god i missed that (laughs) <laughs> yep, I guess those guys are all dead. Like, I, yeah. did they drown? Did they burn? Like, I I don't know. It was really inexplicable. And she just kind of goes, huh, yeah, I guess <laughs> right. Okay, let's go. I, I, I think what the movie Went right was over my head. Trying, what the movie was trying to imply right there was that the senior class is much bigger and really focusing on these very specific characters because, as you may, as you guys may recall, there's an early scene in which we see a room full of teenagers dancing and carrying on. Oh, in the boxing scene as well. There were yeah, probably but, more characters yeah. there. Yeah, so I, it's the idea that uh, there might actually be like 100 kids on this boat, and Jason has just kind of chopped them all up when we were what, when we, when we weren't looking, I guess. But um, well, it yeah, has, I, I think it, it has that in common with five in that even less skillfully they have more characters than they know what to do with. And so you have a lot of people just dying off screen or, uh, I mean, I would say that's, that's probably a good litmus test for the, the quality of a Friday the 13th movie is can we follow all the characters and can you tell me how all of them died? Uh, you know? Yeah. Fail flunk. (laughs) Yeah. F plus click. <laughs> so <laughs> says Uncle Charles. Speaking of that axe, though, there was one funny moment in which uh, Jason 
Now, reminding you of the situation, but Jason like grabs the axe from somebody or he chops somebody or it gets thrown. But basically, the axe goes flying and it lands and slams directly in front of Julius's face. Because mm. Julius is, is walking and he's crawling along and the axe goes whap, like right in front of him. And he goes, whoo, that was a close one. And I found myself thinking, if Jason accidentally kills somebody by, like, say, throwing an axe over his shoulder and it kind of wedges in someone's head, does that count? Is it like a scratch in pool? Is it like a... It's like, yeah, what do you call that slop in pool? Yeah, slop. Yeah, yeah. Would that be a slop shot in pool? I think I it know. is. I don't yeah. think that would be an official... I mean, that's more like manslaughter, you know? Yeah. I mean, if like if I of... throw an axe and it lands yeah. in Vic's head, but I didn't mean to do it, is mm-hmm. that a kill? I don't think so. Yeah. So I, I, no one, I think no I would only did... do 15 years. Yeah, no one's interested in a mass manslaughter. <laughs> Sorry, Vic, I didn't mean to single you out there. It's not like, you know, I want to throw right. in your direction. Let's get back to this boat. Uh, we are so far from the verisimilitude of early Crystal Lake here. I mean, we might as well be in Alfred Hitchcock's lifeboat or one of those rear projection car sequences from the 1950s. It's so fake. And we show the pathetic loser, Sean, with his pinched, constipated expression. And they're asleep in the dark, and there's a bright light on them. It's a spotlight, bright, but we're supposed to be at night uh, in, on, you know, on the open water. And then we have the hokey fake ending, which I love, where Julius, uh, the black guy, is like, New York City! Yeah! I don't believe it! We made it! Yeah, it's oh, oh, so oh. bad. Uh, you know, uh, it, it is bad. It's terrible. But I, even before you say that, I want to note yeah. that he he laughs like a Keebler elf after yeah. that. And that <laughs> yeah. is my favorite beat in the movie. So anyway, Jason is doing a slow backstroke to keep pace with him. <laughs> this is, I was going to say, this might be Jason's most impressive teleport. Yeah. Uh-huh. They get yeah. to the port and Jason is, is all like he's not out of the water ahead of them. But he's been seconds. keeping pace with them, yeah, yeah. Uh, underwater for miles, apparently. Like, it's really... Uh, he literally arrives 10 seconds after they do. Yeah. <laughs> Jason's... Tele- well, I, I mean, I, I wasn't too surprised because Jason has been working on his teleporting abilities throughout this entire movie. I, I mean, he's been really working that muscle. So, you know, I... I, I mean, I, I was most, I, like, I, I, and I laughed out loud when he crawled out of the water as soon as they got to New York. Because mm-hmm. uh, I was immediately, you know, picturing what that looked like. Uh, the, <laughs> the slow backstroke of Jason Voorhees. <laughs> but even before that, remember, there's the, there's the guy who is on the deck of the Lazarus. He sees Jason. He scampers up a ladder to the crow's nest. And he looks back, and Jason is immediately there. <laughs> and grabs them and throws them down. Uh, yeah, and it's like, man, I'd like for once just to see Jason just moving that quickly. I feel like it's more like Nightcrawler from the X-Men. It would be great to actually just see Jason um, earn these things but rather than being editing cheats. But So the next note that I have on my list is the hockey billboard. And I want to ask, I'm going to challenge Mike on this one. I'm going to challenge you, Mike. 
Are you sure that you didn't just remember this memory of the LA Kings billboard yeah. because you've seen no. this movie? <laughs> no, dude. I, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you this, man. I, I, I had seen this movie twice before that event. Okay. I, I, I distinctly, but I, I distinctly remember walking down Sunset Boulevard. I looked up. There was a billboard. There was a giant glowing high man, hockey mask, and I thought, "Oh shit." They're doing another Friday the 13th movie. And then, I've, and then I got a little bit closer. I'm like, oh, no, it's an advertisement for the LA Kings. And then when I watched this scene, even though I've seen this movie twice before, this scene never really registered with me to accept that. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that part. Like, I laughed out loud. I was fucking dying right. while I was watching that. Because, because John, Vic, I have shared an emotional experience with Jason Voorhees. This is one of my favorite scenes in the film. Absolutely. I, I, love it. I have looked up at a billboard of a hockey mask and, and tilted my head in curiosity. <laughs> but the interesting thing, none of us are hockey fans, but I am pretty sure that the mask that he has is a relic. Like They haven't used that type of goalie mask in a really long time. It scratches the surface. It gives you the vaguest hint of what they might have done with Jason in New York as yeah, opposed yeah. to what they actually did. Because I agree, it is it's, it's one of the it's it's one of the few kind of uh laugh line is not the right word, but one of the few visual puns uh that, that actually works. It has uh, cleverness. Yeah. yeah. And again yeah. it's that juxtaposition. It's you have this character who's been living in a shack and eating uh, uh, dogs and and rabbits and and fighting bears uh, suddenly in New York City, like the most cosmopolitan place in the world. And like, when are we going to get to see Jason? You know, interacting with those people. And Seth- yeah, you know, Vic, does Jason Voorhees even know that the game of hockey exists? Probably, I would assume that yeah. by he, nine or ten when he when he drowns. Yeah, I mean, and oh. he's like growing up in a summer camp mid in in New Jersey, and like I would say, sports and games were probably on his radar. But that said, I mean, oh, to have seen Jason Voorhees wander onto the ice during a Rangers game, like. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that's fantastic. <laughs> See, Vic, you should have written this movie. God yes, damn it. Yes, I should have. <laughs> All right, so we have a big scene here to talk about. It's the first and I believe only rape scene in Friday the 13th history. That's not uh, No? Yeah, I, was, I, I was about yeah, to bring Jason, up the dream, uh, the dream uh, sequence uh, in three. Yeah, well, that is an implied dream sequence. Implied, and this is a almost dream sequence. And you'll notice that when, when the thugs pounce on them, pounce on our little group, uh, they do two things. They grab the Statue of Liberty necklace off of poor Rennie's throat, but then he loses it. Like, like he just throws it down instead of just keeping it. And then they drag her off. Well, it's worth like two dollars. Yeah, but but it's like but it looks like it's gold, and he makes a point of grabbing it off her throat in a savage manner, and then yeah. just kind of throws it on the ground. These two muggers, uh, one of them, and this is sorry, Mike, going to go over your head. Looks like Troy Palomalu. Um, yes, that's a, that's a fair <laughs> assessment. And the guy that says "comprende" is about as Hispanic as Morgan Freeman. 
I, mean, it's just, <laughs> I don't buy it. <laughs> but they, they pull a gun and, uh, and, and they tell uh, our little group of characters who have just suffered. You know, I, I, you know the thing that I actually like, kind of vaguely kind of sort of like about this entire sequence with the muggers slash uh, almost rapists is our little group of characters have just survived an amazingly horrific ordeal. Like in any other movie, them getting off the ship would be the end of their movie, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it gets a safety, and they're immediately they're presented with you know you know the threat of gun violence and rape, and they grab Rennie and they drag her off to be sexually assaulted. And uh, I, I I was somewhat unsurprised when Charles goes, "Well, I guess that's it. You know, what are you gonna do?" <laughs> and only Sean, you know, our erstwhile 420 sleepy boyfriend, is like, no, we have to like do something, you know. It's like, I mean, sadly, he can't use his electronic sextant to help her. <laughs> <laughs> but, and unfortunately, Stephen King's pen is uh, back on the ship. But, you know, but okay. however, this sequence does lead us to uh, a beat which is very, very common in both horror movies and, weirdly enough, uh, superhero movies, which is the, uh, the rape that's foiled by the uh, yes. arrival of, of a powerful guy. And we find that in, I mean, we see that again and again and again in movies. And, I, like, to my mind, I think this is the first time that I've seen it in a film, but I've also seen like scenes that are similar to this in V for Vendetta, the first Spider-Man, a female character is about to be sexually assaulted by scumbag dudes in an alley and our dude shows up and he beats the fuck out of them. But in this case, what makes it interesting is he is actually really interested in murdering her too. But the only reason that she survives this experience is because He's so interested in murdering the dudes that she has a little bit of time to get away. Yeah, I mean, I think there's tremendous irony in this. And I did write, and I I appreciate what you're saying, and I appreciated the scene, because I wrote, Jason prevents a rape. Yay, go Jason. You know, it's such a bizarre beat. Like, you don't see this uh, in these films, where Jason, like, accidentally is heroic in this sequence. They're referring to this alley as the Casbah. And they call her Princess. Uh, I like that. It's a nice fake alley. And there's like a dumpster fire. There's always a burning dumpster in a fake New York movie. And they tell her that it'll be better for her if she's stoned. And I guess to them, being stoned means shooting heroin into her veins. Which is, the drugs are reanimator green. They're like a yellow green it's like they're administering the reagent into her veins. And then we also get this fantastic line, better slang us some more cane, Jojo. We only got a half load here. We're in for a long night. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I am not Charles Bukowski by any means, but that does not sound like authentic lingo to me. Cane, half load, I think maybe the 55-year-old New York screenwriter is making some shit up. My big technical issue with this from a screenwriting perspective is that uh, you've got two homeless drug addicts who are going to give their drugs to their rape victim. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, 
I've seen train spotting. I don't think they would do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Maybe this is know, a real like, act of love and compassion on their part. Yeah, well, I, I, <laughs> Listen, Freddie, you got to try this stuff. <laughs> I'm telling you. It's the bee's knees. <laughs> I, this heroin, uh, th- th- this coca, it's the bee's knees. You got to try this heroin, see? I mean, there's a lot of drug stuff going on in this movie. So we have the arrogant blonde rich girl is snorting coke off of a mirror that gets uh, broken. And, oh, holy shit. She br- Remember when Charles breaks uh, or catches them uh, yeah. snoring the heroin? Like, she drops the mirror that she's snoring the coke off of, and it breaks. And then later on, she's caught... Uh, in her little bathroom, and Jason does goes out of his way to break a mirror, killer to grab a shard and murder her. Was he watching the first time? I don't know. I, I, you know, guys, listen. I think there is a thematic thing that the the filmmakers were trying to accomplish with that. But um, I, 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 we, we, I, I and again, it's like you. We have this uh, this vision of New York that's so Nancy Reagan. That's so. You know, it's like the cover of like a heavy metal album, you know, where where it's like these lurid, you know, drugs glow green and there's toxic waste and barrels and sewers. And there's there's so much toxic waste in this version of New York. (laughs) Yeah, it's like there's no place to put toxic waste except for New York City. (laughs) (laughs) It flows like water. But no, it's like I mean, they're they're talking about drugs and street punks and toxic waste, and it's like this really super cartoonish idea. Of well, Mike, you and I have always talked about this like era of New York and how it's depicted in cinema, like the New York as the fall of Rome, you know, where New York was this this decaying evil city. And you have to admit, I mean, this film, even though it's pretty late to the party, I think Rudy Giuliani was already mayor by then and cleaning shit up and but it's tapping into that early 80s vision of new york in a really broad and clueless way oh yeah i i I would say that this uh movie its vision of new york is somewhere between serpico and death wish and teenage mutant ninja turtles in terms of like just the the glowing green ooze aspect of you know just the yeah, toxic yeah, I, waste is always like bright green in this film. It's yeah, and it's like yeah, you know, it's like you know, kids have boom boxes and they're blasting rap and they're doing right. drugs. We're in New York, and it's obviously not New York for the most part. It's it's some shitty soundstage. And I want to draw your attention to there's an episode of Broad City. I think it's season two that is infinitely more impressive on probably a lower budget, where they curate several blocks of New York and they just have all of these people that look like extras and they're probably, you know, very carefully chosen to represent something that the, you know, the writers and producers of the show have seen in New York today. It's all with a meaning and it's, it's super naturalistic and it feels real. Meanwhile, this is ultra fake and cheesy. Their depiction of New York. The best (laughs) kill in this film is the boxing kill. Uh, I love when Julius is punching Jason in the mask multiple times. Jason's backing up. He's taking a pounding. He's not putting up any defense. His arms are down. Then J- then Julius starts working the body. It's so funny. Like, body shot, body shot. Jason backs up to the other end of the roof. 
Julius gives it everything he's got. He's this champion boxer who we saw beat the crap out of this other guy earlier in the movie. Jason just indulges him for a really, really, really long time. He lets him punch himself out. So finally, Julius is standing there, his hands bloody, he's exhausted, he throws a wild miss. Jason just watches him. Another wild miss. Julius is gasping. It's hilarious. And then finally, Julius just says, give me your best shot, motherfucker. And Jason punches his head off. Not only does he punch his head off, but it flies off the side of the roof. Lands yes. into a dumpster that then slams shots. You're right. <laughs> I, have to, I, I love that. I do love that. Yeah. When the dancer, when the dumpster slams shot, that that is to my mind the city of New York going fuck you. <laughs> it's a terribly poor effect all the way, but still, it's the thought that counts. Sometimes, to yeah. me, that's the high point of the film, hands down. Oh yeah, because I, I, they're, they're, I mean, again, it's kind of like when Kelly Who gets strangled, there's something like weirdly affecting to me about that sequence because he gets like exhausted throwing everything he's got at Jason. And it's like, I mean, all of this character's power comes from his fists. You know, he's undefeated. He's an athlete. He's going somewhere. He's going to do something with his life. He's going to be a champion. X, Y, Z, you know? And uh, when he's confronted with uh, a killer who's caused all this carnage. He's like, I'm going to beat this dude up, you know? And uh, I was a little uh, leery of his decision to punch Jason right in his hockey mask a lot. <laughs> his fists. I thought that that, w- that that was unwise. I thought that he should have gone to the body a little bit earlier. But, <laughs> hey, I'm not a professional boxer. Let's just put that out there. So oh, that is hilarious, Mike. But, so y- but, you're saying that he should have worked the body on the undead killer. Little, you know, maybe a, a nice rabbit punch to the kidney would have taken Jason out. If I'm confronted with an undead killer who has exactly one piece of armor on his body, I would avoid punching the one piece of armor. Is what I'm trying to say. Fair enough. But the sound yep. design there was pretty good. Like the impact of the fists on the mask. I like the sound effect there. I I kept thinking, why doesn't he angle him towards the edge of like he was right. the edge of the roof? Like he was, they were going the the long way down it, and I just kept thinking, like if I was this guy, because Jason's just backing up, he doesn't know where the edge of the roof is. Right. Like, there's a there's an effective way to get out of this. Um, and You're right. And he, he Push Jason it. off the roof. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which Jason is apparently going to willingly submit to. Uh, you 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 had your shot there, Julius. Um, but when you, you know. talk about Jason's uh, mindset in this film, like this is the one time where I really got something from him Agreed. and appreciated it because I truly believe that Jason is toying here. Mm-hmm. And I, I take a lot of pleasure in that, that Jason is just like he's not befuddled, but he's he's kind of like the what I read is really, you know, like you think this is uh you think that this is going to do something? Okay. And I'll give you your shot, you know? And then he waits until the guy is done. He's got nothing left to give. And then he's like, okay, now I'll kill you. 
And yeah. I think that that shows a sophistication that we n- almost never see from Jason, but I, I really like. So uh, then we have uh, the drug point of view of Rennie, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and she's thanking Jason for maintaining her anal virginity. And they run into an NYPD cop. And uh, he's got a Canadian accent. And he's like, are, are you all right? Jason's out, out in a boot. And... Um, <laughs> It's hilarious. It's supposed to be fake Irish, but it's more Canadian. And then he's the uh, most uh, unrealistic un, uh, New York cop in the entire ever. face of uh, cinematic history. Absolutely, don't buy him as an NYPD blue for one second. But it is kind of cool to see Jason killing cops. I have to admit, it's kind of like upping the ante. It's like um, a little bit like Alien Three, if it really was on Earth, everyone can hear you scream. Where we finally get the antagonist thrust into the heart of civilization and just you know taking out the guardians of civilization uh head on and then he gets hit by a car full on which is kind of cool and then we see the mongoloid makeup for the little ghost kid and he looks like yoda in my eyes but whatever nice try and when she sees that she looks like she shit her pants which is great and the police car blows up for no reason and uh, whatsoever, and half the budget goes out the window there. And suddenly her hair is huge, also for no reason whatsoever. She looks ready to sing Walk Like an Egyptian, and which would have been welcome. And we have a lap dissolve or optical printing or whatever, which I, I actually really appreciate. Now we have the rowboat that she's in with Uncle Charles and, the, and Crystal Lake in a burning puddle of oil in New York. One Way the, more interesting than any other visual in the whole film. One of the coolest shots in the movie, I agree. Yeah. Um, and But it leads us to, again, this is one of those things that Part 7 stands so much higher in juxtaposition to this. Because this is the, this is the mystery of her aquaphobia that's, that's played almost no role in the movie at all. Um, you know, but we've been building to this moment of, of re- revealing this element of her character and... Uncle Uncle Charles threw her in the lake once. <laughs> now what? Well, what? What? The sequence is one of the most interesting sequences that I've seen in terms of plugging into the mythology of Friday the Thirteenth that I've seen. Even in a situation in which Uncle Charles can be a fatherly character, can be uh, sympathetic. You know, uh, she's a little girl. He's being. Uh, he's giving her advice. Uh, even then, we we, tru- we truly see what a bastard he is because he goes, all right, well, it's time for you to learn how to swim. He tells her the story of Jason Voorhees as a way to scare her into learning how to swim. And one can only wonder what kind of fucking crazies that Uncle Charles had as parents, that this is his vision of how to take care of a child. He scares her with the idea that, well, you know, a boy drowned in this pond once. And, uh, you know, he's still down there. And then he grabs this little girl and throws her into the water. And he goes, okay, if you want, you must now learn how to swim. Or else Jason will get you. And what do you know? She sinks for a little bit. And Jason actually gets her. The spirit of, of Jason Voorhees as a as a drowned boy rises up from the bottom of this lake and grabs her by the ankle. And uh, I mean, to my mind, I mean, that's, that's some yeah. serious shit, man. I mean, that was cool. It was scary. Yeah. I, it is. 
it's it, but it it's a complete reinvention of the because we've talked about Jason as a, a a myth, and that's an interesting myth that he that he conveys to her. It's just completely new. And we're getting it through the lens of a failed swim lesson. It's a cool story, and I and and I sort of get that. But it's like this late in the day, like not just in the franchise, but this late in the movie, you're gonna tell me that Jason was actually just just hanging out down there, like grabbing poor swimmers. Well, uh, I, 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 <laughs> this movie specifically stands out in the franchise that in in, in the way that's connecting the drowned little boy with the monster that we see. Mm. We haven't seen this direct connection between those two characters since, I want to say, two. You know? And it's really trying to go, okay, even though he's, you know, the monster that's chasing us around as a supernatural being, at one point in time, he was just a drowned little boy. But what's weird is that he was still a malevolent ghost. You know, it's, it's basically positing the idea that that the rotted creature that grabbed uh, the girl at the end of the first Friday the 13th movie was real. That there is a malevolent force at the bottom of Crystal Lake that brings the dead back to life to evil purpose. You know, in the first movie, doesn't Jason's little kid voice kind of say, get him, mommy, get him, kill him. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I, I almost have to wonder if that voice isn't I, – I, I, when they were making the first Friday the 13th movie, they were thinking along the lines of Psycho. That was just yeah. a uh, – uh, you know, uh, you know that the voice was coming from a psychological point, viewpoint. But now, dude, I think that the ghost drove her to madness to massacre all those kids right. in the first Friday the 13th movie. I mean, if we're going to you know, posit from the point of view of the rest of the sequels, I mean, it clearly goes in like a super, supernatural direction. That's what was all along. There's also in the comic books, apparently, the suggestion that he was dead and Pamela basically used the backwoods wizardry or the Necronomicon or went mm-hmm. to... Uh, the witch from Pumpkinhead or whatever, and brought back her son. So, you know, he was always, even in his sort of quasi-alive state, he had been resurrected. He was, in a sense, a zombie all along. All right, well, unfortunately, Vic's going to have to leave us. So uh, what are your final thoughts about uh, Jason Takes Manhattan? Um, well, I'm glad that I'm going to get to to throw in as we we virtually reached the the climax, which was in uh, in many ways nonsensical, and it sort of sums up the whole enterprise for me. Uh, I mean, the the subways flood with toxic waste every night at midnight. What? That's insane. <laughs> and the toxic waste somehow magically evaporates all of the the decay and death from Jason Voorhees and leaves a you know a twelve year old boy in a bathing suit. There is again there the the idea of taking Jason into an urban environment I think is is really clever and I think it had a lot of potential uh, and I think they they blew it in almost every way that they could even with the the budget and everything else. It, it's not without its charming it's not without its charming moments but uh, overall this one this one ranks very near the bottom if not at the bottom of the the franchise for me. It is the bottom for me. I mean, I I honestly think part five looks 
really good by comparison, and I didn't think I would ever say that. I don't. I feel exactly the same way, and I heard that I had that exact same thought. Was wow, I looks competent compared to this. So uh, that's it. I'm gonna go uh, uh, take care of my my family life problems and put my son to bed. So you guys uh, wrap this up. Remain in in good form. I trust you can you can handle this without me. And uh, we will talk. Thanks, next buddy. Week. Let's pick this back up with the rowboat sequence, yeah. which I, I do find very interesting. And yeah. I do think it's hilarious that Charles, Uncle Charles, uses the legend of Jason to make this child understand why he's doing what he's doing to her. He's yeah. literally going to throw her into a lake because she didn't keep last year's promise to take swimming lessons. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, this, this is a guy. I mean, again, I, I find myself considering the thought process and psychology of characters who probably the screenwriter and actors didn't. But uh, in this case, I, I wonder if he didn't come from like some like weirdly abusive background where like uh, you only get taught stuff by like the most harsh and savage manner possible. Yeah. This you know, feels like a very 20th century World War II kind of thought process. It goes into that whole psychology that was represented by how do you teach a kid to swim? You throw them into the deep end of the pool and they figure it out. You know, yeah. like, that's clearly his psychology here. Absolutely. But I, I, one has to wonder if someone had done that for Jason, would he not mm. be alive today? It wouldn't a lot of teenagers still be alive today if it's because had... pamela coddled him yeah remember when she's like he wasn't a very strong swimmer she was an overprotective mother who was castrating mother all of the freudian archetypes uncle charles is a dick you know but at the end of the day he kind of has a point because you kind of want to teach I, I i think that the central core idea of all of these films is we should teach children how to swim. I love that Charles doesn't look a day younger in this flashback. Hair and makeup did a great job. Hair and makeup looked at him and was like, all right, well, uh, we have to dial you back by about 15 years. Eh, nah. You're going to be a bitter old man your entire life. So then the kid shows up again, the dead Jason, and I almost feel like he looks so different every time that he shows up. It's yeah. like a reality show, like a contest where they like win one scene of Jason's makeup and like it's totally different people doing totally different makeups every time we see this dead kid. It's well, like face off on sci-fi. It takes time to make up a kid like you're going to make him up. And if you're going to invest that time to make him up in a certain way. There has to be an artistic thought process. I, and again, I realize that I mean, throughout all these podcasts, I'm, I'm giving these filmmakers like massively the benefit of the doubt. Well, maybe it was an artistic choice. Blah, blah, blah. Maybe I would hope, but I'm given the fact that the kid has such an integral aspect to the mythology of this particular film. This movie stands out from the entire series. And that is the reason that I appreciate it. Uh, because the rhythms of it are different, the settings of it are different, 
And you and Vic are, are very quick to compare it to five. And I, on some level, agree with that comparison because five is one that's willing to go, let's take a look at this mythology and really think about it. And, and both five and eight are the two movies that do that. And unfortunately, both five and eight are the two movies that are like the worst of the series. Their ambition is so not met by their actual reach they strive for so much and they fall so so far short that it it's it invalidates the enterprise completely but in reality it was kind of a worthwhile enterprise to start with because like you know there's there's cool aspects to both films goals it's just that in execution they step on their dick and shit the bed to such an extent that it <laughs> invalidates everything. I think in a weird kind of way, that's probably why you love Seven so much. Because uh, that is one where uh, they actually do push out the mythology. They go, you know what? We are now living in a supernatural world. A zombie serial killer is not the only entry to uh, the supernatural well, it stands to reason, you know, I mean, it's like, if this exists, then doesn't that open the door for a lot of other things? True. Know? A legend can somehow become real, and the rules by which uh, that exists are also very narrative. Like, if you can figure out the narrative, then you can figure out how to survive the story in which you've been pulled. What these movies do is they create a story and they pull people who don't know they're in a story into it. And it's only that the people who can figure out how the story works, how it begins and ends, are the ones who can find their way out. They're killer stories. It's, it's kind of like a riddle to be unraveled, you know? And you're not presented with the rules of the game. You have to figure that out on the fly as you're being hunted. The characters that win, Amy Steele, for example, she pieces together enough of Jason's backstory to defeat him. Right. That's a perfect example of what you're saying. The psychic girl, like she has to put together the clippings and realize who she's up against in order to defeat Jason. Right. These final girls might as well be uh, surviving a night with an ogre or Baba Yaga. You know, and just the idea that it's like if you figure out the fairy tale that you're in and the rules by which it works, then you can survive. You know, for instance, at the, I mean, let's talk about the very end. At the very end of this movie, the characters are in a sewer. Uh, they're literally in the sewers of New York, you know, the worst possible place they can ever be. And they run into uh, a sewer worker who's like, yeah, at, at midnight – Every night, we flush out these sewers to get rid of, the, again, the toxic waste. You know, the idea that New York is loaded with toxic waste all over the place. And uh, they run up a ladder, and they're trying to push up out of the, uh, the manhole. And they're unable to get out there until Jason Voorhees shows up and catches up with them. But then the flood comes, and the flood, for whatever reason, drowns him. So he turns back into drowned Jason. And he's now a little boy, and he's helpless, and now he's dead. How those rules apply, I have no idea. 
because there's no actual logic to it. Because if we were to say, well, running water will turn this giant zombie guy back into a little boy, then why didn't that happen to him when he was backstroking the fight <laughs> in New York? But there, there is a, you know, a narrative element, I suppose, that is, again, it's unsold. They, they present a rule without giving us a rule. Well, let's back up because I think we're skipping over a few fun things and I'm not going to be able to make sense of the ridiculous logic of this climax. Fun things along the way. The kid pushes McCullough Charles into an amazingly fake clean dumpster, which I really appreciated. It's all (laughs) shredded paper, (laughs) plastic wrap. And a pole. It's like, That's it. It's like Lou Ferrigno threw him in there. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I was just cracking up watching this this quote unquote dumpster. You remember in uh, uh, They Live uh, yeah. when Rowdy Rowdy Piper and, uh, ends up in a uh, trash compactor that's completely filled with like super clean cardboard boxes and yeah, some... it's all like packing peanuts and shit. When um, Jason shows up for Uncle Charles, he goes, "You." It's not possible. Again, like somehow hinting myth- mythologically that, you know, McCullough has an re- existing relationship with Jason, if only as mythology. You know, he's always, as, as he was using Jason as the boogeyman for Rennie, Jason is definitely a, a figure in this guy's mind, which is interesting because most of the victims in these films are like, who? I never heard about those murders somehow. I have to say, this is a good kill when Jason kills Uncle Charles. It's just a guy being dunked in a barrel of water, you know, essentially. So the MPAA can't fuck with it. They can't, you know, uh, declaw it the way Cruz's death is really savaged by the censors to such a degree that it has almost no visceral impact on the audience at all. Meanwhile, in this case, it's like, oh, man, that is a sucky way to go to have your lungs filling up with, like, toxic waste. By implication, it's horrible. It's just horrible. Oh, like, no. It, it, it's not only a horrible way to go, but it, it's like in terms of the symbolism that this movie has chosen mm-hmm. for New York, it's you know to take a barrel with a dead rat floating on top of a pool of toxic <laughs> waste and to shove a dude head first in that and just kind of hold him legs first like a gangster drowning a guy. The rowboat and the drowning and the the water motifs throughout, it mm-hmm. all kind of comes together there, you know? Oh, like, yeah. yeah. Charles well, was well, the well, guy that was threatening this poor girl with drowning, and yeah. that's how he fucking goes out. Yeah, he, he drowns this dude. He, he shoves this dude head first into what this movie presupposes to be New York, concentrated. Yeah. Concentrated New York. I have a face full of it. And then, I, I, ironically enough, like not long after that, Jason uh, emerges from the subway and he stands in the middle of Times Square. And even Jason Voorhees takes a moment to look around at and the spectacle. marvel. Yeah, the marvelous spectacle of Times Square. My goodness gracious. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to get to the confrontation with the punks, but one last comment about that kill is that that's the only time in these films that I feel 
that the death of a character was really the coup de gras was specifically tied to that character in a way that like that's exactly the death that that particular character deserved let me you tell know? you Un- uncle trolls never in his life thought that he was going to die by getting drowned by an undead zombie head first into a barrel of toxic goo with a, a drowned rat it's also perfect if you just think about that character as the archetype of like the guy uh, in Animal House, you know the the stuffed shirt, like mm-hmm. um, dean of students kind of guy. Like it's the perfect death for just that type of character to yeah. be donked upside down like a like a keg stand. Uh, he is a very yeah. clean character who is drowned in pill. Jason is uh, running past boxes and barrels, and he's panting and he's breathing hard. Even though he's dead <laughs> on the subway, <laughs> and he's teleporting. Well, we, we, we've already we've already established in part seven that even though he is an undead zombie, he is going to uh, breathe really hard all the time. <laughs> right. He, for the first time ever, as Vic alluded to, he he doesn't kill people right in front of him for no apparent reason. Uh, there's a line somewhere in there. I think maybe it's our version of Crazy Ralph says something like. It's because you're the last of them, or something like referring to all of Friday. I mean, all of Nightmare on Elm Street. That it's because of where they live and who they are as like um, Crystal Lake denizens. That's why he's so locked in on them. But it's Maybe. very big. That's actually a really interesting idea. Is the idea that I mean, he's going to murder Crystal Lake residents? Or vacationers first, because they're uh, I, again the intruders. In terms of, yeah, in, in terms of narrative kills, you know they more closely resemble the people who allowed him to drown. But on the other hand, I have to just kind of freestyle wonder: Have we seen a situation in which Jason Voorhees has decided to kill somebody and then kill somebody else? We've never in these movies. Seen a situation in which Jason has been like, I'm going to kill Tina, but, uh, oh, shit, something happened, and I'm going to kill Scott instead. There are clear points in uh, 6 and 7 where mm-hmm. he does not kill Megan in 6 because he's locked in on Tommy. He just kind right. of throws her aside. And yeah. then... He does not kill Nick in seven because he's locked in on Tina. So I, I almost have to wonder if the, the reason that he doesn't go American Werewolf in London on Times Square is due to the fact that he has an internal rule that he decides, all right, you're the next to die. And I don't care if I have to push past 100,000 right. people to get to you, but you're the next to die. We didn't really get into the punks. I just wanted to tell the audience what happened. Jason is uh, walking by and he, he kicks the boombox or something and yes. the punks are going to go after him and he just turns around and flips up his mask to give them a look at the uh, the face underneath and one of them, it's a laugh line, he goes, it's cool, it's cool. Yeah, I, 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 I was reminded of, um, you know, when I was a really little kid, I used to like a cartoon about a dog had a doghouse on his head because he was so ugly that if you looked at him, you'd be scared. 
<laughs> and uh, that, that's how you defeat enemies. Like uh, he would lift up the doghouse and people would be like, ah, <laughs> like, oh, it's like the cartoon dog. But uh, I, I was deeply amused by that scene because uh, uh, the music on the boombox was the worst rap ever recorded <laughs> in human history. The music in this is uniformly horrible. You, you get the feeling that there's there's like an older sensibility trying to kind of squint and figure out what the kids are into these days. And so you get like hair metal that's like super, that, that sounds like it was like recorded by like people who do jingles usually. And I, mm-hmm. I, I kept thinking of all the, in 1989, the Sunset Strip was full of hair metal guys who had no idea that grunge was right around the corner. That was going to show up and make them cut their hair. <laughs> like a drill sergeant at uh, boot camp. <laughs> like, take off that makeup and put on this flannel. <laughs> so the girl, Rennie, runs into the diner and says something along the lines of, you know, this man is trying to kill me. And the waitress says, welcome to New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's I, fun. I, I, I mean, it that. That, that, that diner scene was very much, they wanted to get like one scene where like the characters would have to interact with, you know, broad New York types. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't want to give give the audience a case to New York. I did love when uh, Jason smashes through the wall, yeah. the most cheaply built wall ever, <laughs> and uh, this gigantic cook comes out to 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 manhandle him, and uh, Jason just isn't having that. Although I did also notice that when he was on the subway, um, he very rudely bumps into a girl. Yes, he does very rudely. He 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 takes out a stunt woman. And um, in believable fashion, the way that the impact occurs, that, that was actually staged rather well. But he's not really killing anyone else for the first time ever. Um, yeah, they're borrowing it, it, from, like, Nightmare in this, where it's like he's got his specific targets, and that, that's who he's locked on because they're from Crystal Lake. Right, yeah. I, I, we, we've seen in action and horror movies many versions of the, uh, the pursuit through a subway. And, uh, I, I, you know, was, I, I thought it was neat to see, you know, Jason Voorhees be in, involved in, in, in a mm-hmm. scene like that. Oh, and we should point out that in between uh, beginning this epic podcast and uh, finishing it tonight, um, the great Betsy Palmer has, uh, has left this mortal coil. She uh, passed away yesterday. I would like to uh, take the opportunity to dedicate this podcast to Betsy Palmer. Yes, I second the motion. And we'll talk more about her, of course, as we wrap up uh, the whole series later on. But let's uh, continue on here. Uh, the kids are now in the sewers. And it actually reminded me, Mike, of Hellraiser 2. Some of these shots of the long sewer tunnels to nowhere that don't really look entirely real. She has to yell uh, a couple of times, come on, because I guess he wouldn't have gone along with her otherwise. He was just going to be lollygagging in the sewers with Jason following them. Once again, we find like kind of a, a, a gender reversal because ordinarily uh, in movies, you know, it, it's the, the main male protagonist is running along and he's holding his love interest hand. You know, as if she wouldn't know to, like, run away from the bad guys, you know, unless he, like, tows her along like a child, you know, in, in, in a playground. Yeah, and, th- that uh, kills me in how many movies that is, where you literally have a woman who apparently would just stand there if she didn't have the man <laughs> to drag her along. 
Yeah, but uh, in this case, uh, she's the one who's dragging him and going, come on. And uh, although, you know, when Jason finally catches up with them, thanks to his magic teleporting abilities, he um, he, he kind of uh, linebackers them, and he knocks out the dude, and he's about to kill the dude. And what is the first, to my mind, like super clear example of him menacing an unconscious person? Because in Seven, remember, the guy gets knocked out, and Jason goes over to him, but just kind of lightly pokes him with his foot. You can hear bones cracking when he does that. In Seven? In Seven, yeah. Wow, really? Okay. Huh. I mean, obviously, he doesn't break the dude's back because then he pops back up and he's running around like he's, you know, 100% whole. But there's an ominous connotation that he would have just, you know, flattened his spine or something. Maybe Jason only stepped on the the small bones. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe it was like he was giving (laughs) him like that, um, a rolfing, like a hard massage, you know? Right, 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 yeah. But in this one, it's like Jason is clearly going to destroy, going to end the life of an, an unconscious individual. Yeah, you're right. That is a, that is a seminal moment. We haven't seen that before. He does look kind of cool down here in the sewers. I, I thought that it was cool, like you mentioned, with the subway. We have new vistas for Jason to stride through, at least in the in the new environment that they present to him in their version of New York. It opens up the movie a little bit, uh, and I do appreciate it. But then when he kills that sewer worker, it's this phony baloney silhouette kill with the wrench and it's it's so hokey it's so like 1977 television bullshit right uh i i remember didn't didn't, didn't he have a silhouette kill in four? Oh, maybe it would have been in the lightning out in the storm with the yeah. tina or terry uh the twins and it yeah. was quite different because it was actually kind of it was just a cool stylized way to do it here it feels like it's you know, again, we're worried about censors or whatever. It's just, it's just hokey. You know, uh, let l- me just say that I found Rennie to be one of the lamer Friday the 13th protagonists. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I and mean, uh, she wasn't quite as bad as the chick from Five, but uh, de- definitely in the same ballpark of, of not goodness. But um, Well, that, she... that woman wasn't even the protagonist. I mean, it, yeah, was, it right. was Tommy's movie. This yeah. might be the worst, like, lead female in any of the films where she's yeah. supposed to carry the weight of the yeah. film. Yeah, I, I compare her to the girl from Sex, and there it's, you know, night and dark. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Night and dark. Duh. Night and dark. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's night and dark, bro. It's like, yeah. Um, uh, uh, although, luckily, she does know Jason's weakness, and she shines a flashlight in his face, which was something else that is similar to Five. Uh, you know, in yeah. Five, she's constantly being... Characters are constantly being blinded. All you need is like a flashlight and people like hold up a hand and, you know, (laughs) and and, and stagger uncertainly in the face of that blinding light. Yeah. Well, he does stagger drunkenly when she throws the small bucket of toxic waste that happened to be lying in the sewer. Uh, She chucks it into his face. And then this version of dead Jason immediately turns into something that they cut out of return of the living dead because it looked too cheesy. The thing that I did like about that sequence was watching Jason stagger around. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, he really lists about for a while. We haven't and, seen that and, before. Yeah. I, I and We didn't even see that when uh, the psychic chick was beating him up. That's you know? right. Uh, like, he really 
got a snoot full of that stuff and 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 it was giving him a really hard time and yeah i mean this melty face jason is three sheets to the wind yeah i mean uh but then when the mask comes off i was uh i i i I, if we're going to talk about worsts that was probably the worst uh under the mask jason that i've seen in the series definitely it's a terrible makeup job yeah he he looks like a garbage pail kid more than anything else yeah, he really does yeah and uh i, I was like i i, I no, no wonder the punks didn't want to tangle with him when they lifted the mask they, they it was like a stuff. prototypical um makeup for yoda that they rejected because it yeah. was too lame yeah and then um we get the flood yeah there's there's a flooding sewer tunnel and then jason suddenly starts vomiting lake water at the sight of it for no reason that i can fathom well, and see, here's the thing: is what happens is, uh, you know, the sewer worker warns our our protagonist that, hey, we flush the sewers every night at midnight to get all the toxic waste out because apparently people keep putting toxic waste on there. We have to do it every night at midnight, every night, just to hilarious. Keep up the yeah. And um, by the way, do you think that this is the product of writers doing their homework or like one of the most bald-faced and pathetic attempts to just make shit up and sell it to the rubes that you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, I lean towards I the latter. Yeah, I don't know. So they have to get out of the sewers before it floods. Because, because New be York drunk. is unleashing a million gallons of toxic waste through their sewers every night. Sure. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and uh, okay. I, 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 I did kind of laugh when, um, you know, typically, and we've seen similar scenes like this in other movies where, uh, you know, they have to run up the ladder and, of course, the thing is going to be blocked by a car or something like that. And, oh, no. And in this case, they actually never get the grade up. They just kind of hug the top of the ladder and they're fine. <laughs> right. Uh, which, you know, removes the danger from the situation, but so be it. I, I, you know, the movie wanted to keep them present for Jason's demise. And this is the most magical jason demise that we've ever had uh because he turns back into himself as a little boy after some optical printing diarrhea uh it's like bubbles flames and goo cheesy sound effects lightning hits the statue of liberty which i guess is god's wrath on america for allowing (laughs) jason to exist See, they're free, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he's freed himself of the confines of Crystal Lake. It represents freedom. You know, it's giving your entire report, your, your unwashed, uh, undead psycho killers, you know. Yeah, pure Americana. <laughs> to match the, uh, the golden uh, Statue of Liberty necklace. Because, you know, I, and again, you know, I, you get the feeling that it's the filmmakers are sitting around going, okay, this has to be the most New York movie ever. So, I mean, what do we got? We got an obnoxious waitress in a diner. We got the Statue of Liberty. We got, uh, yeah, of course, punks in the alleyways. You know, la la. You know, it's like, and they're just going down the like these super super broad cliches. Yeah, yeah, I know. And the hockey mask dissolves, so this one didn't even make it out of the movie that it was introduced in. Um, I guess it was a cheap replica, probably that they remember the boyfriend bought to scare his girlfriend. So right, wasn't a actual um approved you know league uh league play worthy <laughs> mask <laughs> it, it was it was it was tough enough to uh to to bloody up the boxer's knuckles but not tough enough to withstand uh magic and yes. uh, and again 
I, I we've been talking for you know all these episodes now about you know the 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 latent you know ele- you know the the uh, you know kind of this backwoods magic um, you know the power of the elements how they're kind of linked to Jason's uh, mm-hmm. curse uh, you know or power you know Crystal Lake X Y Z and I, I, I mean it kind of makes sense that like um, you know uh, it, it, there would be a flood or some natural disaster would involve it although I was kind of baffled. The movie tells us that Jason is defeated because he's submerged in a flood of running water, and that turns him back into little boy Jason. Uh, how then did he swim all the way to New York without triggering this? He's been underwater for much of the last 10 years yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, in between I, these movies. Yeah, going by the uh, narrative uh, you know, through line, you know, he should have been a little boy trapped under the debris at the top of the movie. I love that apparently Kane Hodder said that he felt the ending was anticlimactic. You think? <laughs> so we've got this horrible closing theme in this film, and I want to quote some actual lyrics. Yeah, Because this is do. amazingly, awesomely awful. Yes. You've reached the limit. You bend and then you break, and there's no escape. There's no escape. No. Well, while I was listening to that song, I was imagining Dirk Diggler uh, <laughs> I, doing the vocals. You got the touch. Yeah. You got the fire. You know, I, I immediately imagined beads and pastel uh, jackets, hmm. uh, boat shoes with no socks, snorting cocaine, with giant giant mullets. Those, you those were the it. guys. Yeah, those were the guys who gave us that song. Yes. <laughs> And much of this film, we learn as the credits roll, was shot in Vancouver. Yeah, no shit. Um, And there's also another credit that I thought was funny. Um, Original Jason sound effect created by Harry Manfredini. Yeah, they saved themselves a lawsuit on that, I guess. Original Jason sound effect. The lawyers concocted that phrase. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Bailed themselves out. I'm not exactly. I, I, do do they ref, are they talking about the? Ch- 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 ah, 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 I think talking, so. I I actually think so. Yeah, because they're not they're not crediting crediting him with the score in this one at all. Uh, so in order to use something that sounds like that, they have to attribute it in some way, and so they maybe. Call it, I wonder if that's why we get the weird Jason. Yeah, to change it to just just so that it's not stealing, you know, something that they no longer are. Um, I don't know if they're allowed to use because it's it's still Paramount at this point. I don't, yeah. I don't really get it. You know, I'm suddenly yeah. I, I think that lawyers were involved because I this is smacks of a situation in which they're they're calculating. You know, what if we had we we didn't use the but I we can't have a movie. Like they it? didn't pay Harry. That's what this is. Yeah. They didn't pay Harry a dime for this. And that's yeah. how they get out of it. And he, he calls up his lawyer and goes, what the fuck? And the lawyer goes, hey, what the fuck? And they go, okay, well, we'll give you a credit. <laughs> <laughs> so who could ever walk out of this movie even then out of the theater? It's a real movie in the theater. How yes. can you not say that was a steaming turd. I mean, it, it is as cut rate as movies got even back then. Yeah. And finally, yeah. Paramount has been toying with the idea of killing Jason, you know, more in a metaphorical way than literally, obviously. 
right. for years, and they finally found a way to kill this franchise. They finally made a movie that Jason, even this amazing character, could not come back from. Yeah, I and uh, the you know the stuff with the kid, uh, you know, it makes me think. I mean, because it, it, you know, what we're positing is that the giant monster that we see stalking around and killing everybody is is like the fleshly armor around a a spirit. You know, what I mean, it would be like if uh, you know uh, Sadako had a could crawl up into like a giant beast guy. You know, and, and, and that's how it went around. You know, like, you know, the little boy is trapped under the water at Crystal Lake, but he's got this vehicle that he can kind of drive around in. And I think that's the idea of Jason Voorhees, that he's always been the little boy. Or maybe that was where who he was died forever. And then the version of him that quote unquote survived, whether you want to take that literally or, or, you know, indicate that it was the ghost coming back. And um, we've talked about earlier on, like the idea that maybe it's like, it's a, a, a second lease on life where he continued to age and everything yeah. and grow and get bigger. But he was like, you know, like pumpkin head again or something where, you know, it's always going to have, or Pet cemetery. you know, it's always going to have the whiff of the grave and of evil to his, even his second life. Um, however you want to interpret it, you could say that the Jason that died in the lake was a true innocent victim. Humanity and Americans and teenagers, like we can keep subdividing it more specifically, but you fuckers failed me. And now I'm going to make you pay. The little boy Jason spirit keeps appearing to Rennie and going, help me, help me, help me, in this very plaintive way. Uh, and, but, but help him how? You know, uh, because I, I, if it was like an innocent spirit that needed uh, closure, uh, yeah. those appearances would make sense. But the first time that she ever encountered this child spirit, it tr- tried to drown her. Right. You know, and in and, and this really like creepy, monstrous way. Uh, well, so... I mean, isn't it slightly ambiguous? I mean, like, you know how they say that a drowning person will actually pull their rescuer underwater if you let sure. them, you know? So it, 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 it could be argued that he's, even then, it's, he's panicking and, you know, he's just like, it, it could still be a plea for help that would be potentially fatal to, to right. as well. But you're right. I mean, the point that you're making is that we never pay off the idea that the innocent version of Jason is seeking some resolution in this that she, Rennie, could provide. Because yeah, it, I, it plays out the same way they all do. Like, she just has to, you know, hit him with the right shit, and then he, you know, and he's down for the count for this movie. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, the the one thing that I didn't like about that sequence with uh, Uncle Charlie, uh, the flashback, was uh, it continues on the idea that uh, someone tells a scary folk story right. that then immediately turns out to be true. And in the earlier movies, it was, you know, there's this creepy guy who lives out in the woods and watch out, you know. And what do you know? There actually is a creepy guy in the woods and you should watch out, you know. And in this mm-hmm. case, it's Uncle Charlie going, you know, there's a dead little boy in here. And if you don't watch out, he's going to grab you. And guess what? 
there's a dead little boy down there and he grabs it you know yeah i mean it's definitely taken on that classic story that adults or parents tell kids in order to get them to do what they want the campfire story is real and obviously it's not campfire on the canoe although that would be really funny but (laughs) yeah this is mostly a bad movie sad to say mostly is a charitable understatement (laughs) on your part (laughs) but i do find it uh awesome that we were able to talk as much about it as we have been if you can't talk about jason Voorhees, what can you talk about all right well uh jason goes to hell is up next and that's one that i i've only seen once in the theater so in a weird way i am really looking forward to this as much as any of them i've actually never seen it damn I, that's I, awesome I, I i completely checked out of the franchise after eight <laughs> understandable i only came back for uh the remake no that was the first friday the 13th movie i had seen since eight didn't you see freddy versus jason oh yeah i was yeah. freddy versus jason before yeah. that one yeah it was okay it was, it was yeah before the... so yeah i i am basically like the 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 uh, of the 10 quote-unquote true friday the 13th movies uh after i saw eight i was just like yep done so have you seen jason x no no wow. I, I was under the assumption that nine and ten were just as terrible as this one so i didn't bother dude there is a moment and vic has referenced it um and i may have as well there's a moment in 10 that is like i hope it holds up because at the time it was like a a geek gasm you know it it just come it's it's one of those self-aware meta things that uh when i saw it in the theater and i've only seen it once in the theater it hit a bullseye uh for the nostalgia and the appreciation of sort of the tropes of these films so i can't wait to see your reaction to that well i'm looking forward to seeing this movie indeed all right well um that'll do it uh see you guys uh next time we're gonna hand out another round of machete awards Uh, all right john take it easy